it's Christmas, and traditionally I deal with a Christmas text on the Sunday that's closest to Christmas. It's rare to have a Sunday that falls right on Christmas, but it's that way this year. Now, I have preached on about a half dozen Christmas texts over the years. Here in Grace Life, we have looked at some prophetic passages, Isaiah 7:14, Isaiah 9:6, Micah chapter 5 verse 2. It seems I've gravitated more towards those Old Testament texts, but we've also looked at Matthew 2 and Galatians chapter 4 verse 4, 1 John 4 verses 9 and 10, and I looked at my record, and over the years, I've revisited those same texts at least three times a piece, something like 20 or 25 times over the last 30 years. I've preached Christmas time messages dealing with those Advent themes, and that is a pretty broad array of texts, but some of them are Old Testament prophecies. Three of them are. Two of them are texts from the New Testament epistles. I also did a topical message once on the incarnation of Christ during the Christmas season. But you might notice that of all those texts I read, only one of those six texts is from the gospel accounts of Jesus' birth. And that is on purpose because I've always purposely avoided Luke chapter 2 and Matthew chapter 2 at Christmas because I never know what John MacArthur might do in the main service. And I've always thought, you know, it's safest to choose texts where he's, I'm not likely to be preaching from the same passage that he's going to be dealing with. But this year, I decided to throw caution to the wind. And I want you to turn to the best known narrative dealing with Jesus' birth in Luke chapter 2. And I'm going to take the risk that John MacArthur might preach from this passage or its context. And if he does, I hope what I have to say will just simply augment rather than duplicate what he preaches on this morning. But I've been writing an article about shepherding this week. And, and while I was chasing the threads of, of one of the thoughts that came to me, I became intrigued with this account of shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And so this morning, I want to look at the role of those shepherds and how this fits into the cosmic drama surrounding the birth of Christ and what it all means. So here's some context. Luke chapter 1 is dominated by two angelic appearances that are paired with two different birth prophecies. One is a prophecy about the birth of John the Baptist, and the other is about the birth of Jesus. And note well, these are not dreams or visions, but Gabriel, the archangel, and he's even named, he shows up in person both times. First, he announces to Zechariah, who's John the Baptist's father, announces to Zechariah, he's also an old man, that he was going to have a son. This is a miraculous birth and a legitimate miracle because Elizabeth, who's John's mother, had never been able to bear children, and she was already well past normal childbearing age. So this is a miracle, and it is, of course, reminiscent of what happened to Abraham and Sarah. And then in the very next scene, starting in Luke chapter 1, verse 26, Gabriel, the same angel, appears again, this time to Mary. And again, this is not a dream, it's not a vision. The angel appears in physical form. Scripture says he he walks in. He seems to walk right into the room where Mary is, verse 28, and coming in, he said to her, greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. And he tells her that she's going to conceive and bear a son, verse 32, he will be great and will be called the son of the most high God. Now pay attention to the the angel's announcement and what he says about this baby to Mary. He, He will be called great and he will be the son of the most high God, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and there will be no end to his kingdom. And there are a ton of references in that one sentence, references to several Old Testament messianic promises, prophecies. So it's clear that the angel is telling Mary that The son she will bear is the promised Messiah, and he will be great. That's the whole message. But she's not actually married to Joseph yet. She's legally betrothed to him. 
but they haven't come together as husband and wife. And so naturally, Mary asks, how will this be since I am a virgin? And Gabriel explains, verse 35, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. And so a very specific sign is given to Mary as proof of this promise and and as a living witness to the fact that, as the angel says in verse 37, nothing is impossible with God. So she's given this sign, and the sign is the fact, verse 36, that your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age, and this is the sixth month for her who was called barren. So Elizabeth, we find out, is a relative of Mary's, and the fact that this older woman who never was able to bear children is now pregnant is the sign to Mary that the angel's promise to her is legitimate and real. Now, Scripture doesn't tell us how Elizabeth and Mary are related, but it calls her 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 relatives. So they had to be cousins or second cousins or possibly some kind of more distant cousins because according to the New Testament genealogies, Mary is a descendant of David, which would mean she is from the tribe of Judah. But Luke 1 verse 5 says Elizabeth was descended from the daughters of Aaron, which means she was from the tribe of Levi. So they were probably related by marriage rather than by blood, but somehow related. There is, there's also a way they could be distantly related by blood, but according to Luke uh, chapter 1 verse 7, both Elizabeth and her husband were advanced in years. And because Mary was at an age where she was betrothed but not yet married, she would be quite young probably in her mid-teen years, because girls were married at a very young age in those days. So in other words, Mary and Elizabeth were from completely different tribes and completely different generations, and so I'm assuming they weren't close relatives, but there was some kind of family link, and, and these women obviously knew each other. They not only knew each other, but now they had something in common. Gabriel had expressly promised both of them that they would bear sons, and he had also pointed Mary to Elizabeth. So it's understandable that that's where Mary would go. She would want to go and meet this relative who was also having a miraculous birth, and they would talk together. Now, Mary had to travel a considerable distance to be with Elizabeth. It is about 90 miles from Nazareth, where Mary lived, to the little town where tradition says Zechariah and Elizabeth lived. Scripture says it was in the hill country of Judah, so it's at least 90 miles, possibly farther. And But the, the tradition actually points us to a little town in a hilly region that lies actually on the outskirts of the city of Jerusalem today. Luke says Mary stayed there with Elizabeth for three months. So that's the entire first trimester of Mary's pregnancy. She's with her cousin. And that's also the last trimester of Elizabeth's pregnancy. And it appears from the timeline that Mary, of course, went back to her own home as soon as John the Baptist was born, or maybe just before. And the rest of Luke chapter 1 then describes John's birth and tells us how he got his name, records a prophecy that's uttered by his father. And then Luke 2, where we started reading this morning, begins by explaining why Joseph and Mary were in Bethlehem rather than back at their home in Nazareth when Jesus was born. And this is significant, of course, because uh, Micah chapter 5, verse 2, that famous Old Testament prophecy, identifies Bethlehem as the place where the Messiah would be born. And in fact, about 30 years after Jesus' birth, the question of where he was born would become a point of controversy during Jesus' earthly ministry. Jesus, of course, grew up in Nazareth, and therefore people assumed that Nazareth was his birthplace. John 7, verses 40 through 43 says this, Some of the crowd, therefore, when they heard Jesus' words, were saying, This is truly the prophet, which is to say, this is a promised one from the Old Testament, the Messiah. Others were saying, this is the Christ, using the word, the Greek word for Messiah. Still others were saying, no, for is the Christ going to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the seed of David and from Bethlehem, 
the village where David was. And so a division occurred in the crowd because of him. So this is a point of contention. And it wasn't widely known about the birth of Christ, that he was born in Bethlehem. It was often assumed he was born in Nazareth. In fact, Nathaniel, one of the 12 disciples, when he was first introduced to Jesus, it was his friend Philip who introduced him. And Philip told him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph. He said it just like that, Jesus of Nazareth. And Nathaniel's kind of sarcastic response was like, Nazareth, seriously? And he says, John chapter 1, verse 45, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? But what most people at the time did not know and understand was that by this weird quirk of history, Jesus had actually been born a hundred miles away from his own hometown because, Luke chapter 2, verse 4, Joseph was of the house and family of David, and Bethlehem was David's hometown, and so by imperial decree, he had to travel to his family hometown in order to register with the Roman government. That's what put them in Bethlehem. And Luke 2, 4 and verse 11 both refer to Bethlehem as the city of David, which is an interesting reference because throughout the Old Testament, that phrase, the city of David, actually refers to Jerusalem. And even today, the city of David is a, the name of a, a famous archaeological site within modern Jerusalem. It's an area, if you've ever been there, it's just south of the temple, just down the valley from the Temple Mount. And archaeologists believe that district, which is called the city of David, was was actually a place that's been inhabited dating all the way back to the early Iron Age. This was the where the Jebusites lived, and it was the Jebusite stronghold that David conquered and captured, and that's how he got the city of Jerusalem. And David himself, therefore, gave this area the name that it goes by, the city of David. First Chronicles 11, verse 7, David lived in the stronghold, and therefore it was called the city of David. And it was also known as the Fortress of Zion. And both of those names, Zion and the city of David, soon began to encompass the entire city of Jerusalem. By the way, that name, the city of David, is used 42 times in the Old Testament, and it always refers to Jerusalem, never to Bethlehem. But here you have that same expression, the city of David used two times, and these are the only two times that expression is used in the New Testament, and Luke expressly applies it to Bethlehem. Not the actual city of David in the city of Jerusalem, but Luke is not using this as a proper noun or a formal name. He's simply identifying Bethlehem as David's hometown. And so don't be confused by this. You have to keep straight in your mind when you hear that expression, the city of David. Is this an Old Testament reference or a New Testament reference? Because they refer to two different places. Don't be confused by it. When you, Normally when you read the city of David in Scripture, or really even outside of Scripture, normally this is a reference to that original site where the inhabitants of early Jerusalem, the Jebusites, had settled. But Jerusalem today is a massive metropolis that does have Bethlehem even as a kind of outlying suburb. But just bear in mind that when Luke refers to Bethlehem as the city of David, it's not because he's confused. He's simply pointing that out that the, the very place where Jesus was born actually establishes the well-known link that was foretold in the Old Testament between the Messiah of Israel and David and David's throne. David was, of course, the the king who first established the Messianic line. And it was always promised that Messiah would come from his genealogical line. Luke is simply documenting here Jesus' Messianic credentials. Now, you're no doubt familiar with most of this story Luke 2, verses 6 and 7, it happened while they were there that the days were fulfilled for Mary to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the guest room. I just read that from the LSB. You probably heard that all your lives from the King James Version, that she laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. 
And you hear stories about the innkeeper and the inn, and, and you get the idea that all of the hotels in Bethlehem were full, so Jesus was born in a barn. And in fact, you may even have a little set of figures under your Christmas tree that, you know, have the, the sort of lean-to like stable or whatever. Actually, the Greek word that is, is translated the inn in the King James isn't a word that describes the, uh, a traveler's hostel. It's simply a word for room. And in fact, it's the same word that's used in Mark 14, 14 and Luke 22, 11 to speak of the upper room, that place where Jesus ate the last supper with his disciples. It's a rented room. It's a room for guests. It, it refers to a, a spare room or a guest room. And, and that's why it's translated in the LSB as the spare room or the guest room, rather. So the idea may simply be that Joseph and Mary were staying in this guest room, in this rented room, perhaps a place that was either too small or maybe even not private enough for a, to be suitable for a woman who's giving birth. And so they moved to a kind of stable or shelter where animals were kept. And so the very first bed for the Son of Man who had nowhere to lay his head was just an animal's feeding trough. This could not have been an elegant or a comfortable setting. In fact, we usually speak of it as a stable, but the earliest extra-biblical records of Jesus' birth say, actually, this was a cave. Justin Martyr, for example, was born at the end of the first century. He was born about the same time as John, the last of the apostles, died. And Justin Martyr lived fairly close to Bethlehem, so this was the area where he grew up. And while he was growing into adulthood, there were several members of that first generation of Christians who were still alive. So it's entirely possible that he was a near contemporary with some people who actually did know the exact location of Jesus' birth. And anyway, when Justin Martyr was about 50, he wrote an account in which he said that Jesus was born in a certain cave near the village of Bethlehem. And indeed, if you visit there today, if you go to Bethlehem and see the Basilica of the Nativity, it's called, you'll see that this site that has traditionally been accepted as the birthplace of Christ is actually a subterranean grotto just under the altar in this massive basilica that was, has been built over it. In fact, the earliest basilica that was built on that site commemorating the birth of Christ actually dates back to the year 339. So this commemorates a tradition that is very, very old. The actual spot where the manger was supposed to be is actually a little dark area that's lit mostly by candles. It has a definite feel of a dingy cave rather than a picturesque stable, you know, like you see in the manger scenes, the stable always standing out in the bright moonlight and lots of air and everything. It wasn't like that. And now, it's not that the precise location matters very much, except that Luke's point here and throughout his gospel is to stress the humanity and humility of Christ in his incarnation. In other words, Luke wants us to understand that Jesus was born not into the opulence of royal elegance, but rather precisely the opposite. This was a birth and a beginning so humble that it beggars belief, given especially that Jesus is the rightful ruler of the whole universe. No human scheme would ever make a plan like this for the God of all creation to manifest himself to, to humanity in such humility, in a cave. But this is the way of God. 1 Corinthians 1, 27 through 29. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen, things that are not, so that he may abolish the things that are, so that no flesh may boast before God. And you see that truth in bold relief here in Luke chapter 2. In fact, this is the whole point of this account. Namely, this is highlighting how little honor this fallen world showed to this infant Christ at his birth. He wasn't greeted by 
kings and dignitaries. He wasn't celebrated by famous people. Literally, the only people who worshipped him as a newborn infant were unknowns and lowlifes, unskilled workers, shepherds. Now, the wise men come later, but they find Jesus in a house. They're not here on the night of his birth. You, you can move them aside from your manger scene if you like. <laughs> And in fact, this goes on for a while. Even later here in Luke chapter 2, we meet Simeon and Anna, and they are the only two people at the temple. And this is the place that's devoted to the worship of the living God. And yet these two otherwise unknown and unremarkable old people are the only ones in the entire temple complex who recognize the true significance of this baby. And so Luke is stressing again and again the almost unimaginable humility in the way God stepped into the world he had created. The Apostle Paul, who was Luke's closest companion, apostolic companion, described it this way. Here's how Paul said it. Although existing in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a slave, by being made in the likeness of men. Now, note here, he didn't empty himself of his deity or of any of the divine attributes. He didn't get rid of any aspect of his deity. He, he just simply set aside every show of honor and, and all the glory that rightfully belonged to him as God. And specifically, he kept that glory veiled under his very real humanity. And Paul says, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. So it starts here in the manger, but it goes all the way through Christ's life. This is step one in his quest to die on the cross. He enters the world virtually unknown and unrecognized without any kind of unusual honor or advantage, but rather in living in relative obscurity and poverty. And so he came as humbly as possible But don't get the wrong idea here. Jesus coming into this world was not a secret. This wasn't a a furtive attempt for him to sneak into the world in a deliberately clandestine way. His coming had been clearly foretold. And in fact, I believe an argument could be made from the Old Testament that enough clues were given so that even the timing of his first coming could have been discerned by anyone who would have been keen enough to pay attention to it. And in fact, it's true that history records that the the messianic expectation was running high in this generation. People were expectant and hopeful. They were looking for the Messiah, and yet they missed him because they had the wrong idea of what he would be like, precisely because they could not fathom such humility in someone who deserves so much honor. But again, The point was not for Christ to slip into the world unnoticed. He's not trying to mislead people. This is not camouflage. He's not playing a cosmic game of hide and seek. Someone needed to witness this event because Christ is, after all, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, of one substance with the Father, the one by whom all things were made, both in heaven and in earth. That's what we confess. It's what Scripture teaches. And so it would have been utterly inappropriate for Christ to enter the world as a helpless baby and a true human and yet have no one notice, have no one give him any honor whatsoever. As Jesus himself said in his triumphal entry near the end of his earthly ministry, if the whole world of humanity were silent, the stones would cry out. Someone had to notice, someone had to worship, someone had to tell the world. And in the plan of God, those who were chosen to this high honor to be the witnesses and the heralds of his coming were men from the very lowest rung of the social ladder, working men, outdoorsmen, men with zero prestige, men who themselves would never receive any kind of honor from other men, They were seemingly unimportant men who lacked any degree of dignity or stature or respect from their fellow men, shepherds. And in fact, in that culture, shepherds were not considered a respectable class at all. They weren't generally 
devout people. There were exceptions, of course. You have like David in his younger years who actually wrote scripture while he was shepherding. But that, it wasn't easy for shepherds to be observant of Moses' law. Their work rendered them un, ceremoniously unclean almost continually. And Sabbath, uh, Sabbath observance was virtually out of the question. Most shepherds also had a reputation for dishonesty and theft. William Hendrickson, who, who wrote some great commentaries, says it this way, quote, Shepherds were indeed a despised class. Not only was it difficult for them because of the very nature of their occupation to observe all the regulations of the Mosaic law and especially all the man-made rules superimposed on that law, but in addition, they were suspected of confusing thine with mine. I like the way he says it. In other words, they were thieves. For these reasons, he says, they were looked down upon and they were even excluded from the company of those who were allowed to give testimony in courts. So they couldn't give testimony in court cases. And furthermore, these guys were the night shift shepherds. They didn't even have enough status among their fellow shepherds to, to draw the daytime shift. They, and they appear here in the plural, shepherds, not just one of them, but more than one. There could have been as few as two or three you know, taking turns in the night watches, or, or it could be that multiple flocks were congregated on one hillside so that there might have been half a dozen or more shepherds. We're not told how, how many, so the exact number can't be important. But you'll hear this. It's frequently been suggested that because of the night temperatures during winter months, at, especially at that elevation, the presence of shepherds on those hills means that it's not likely that Jesus' birth actually took place in December. You'll hear that frequently. And it raises a fascinating question. And it is true that some of my favorite commentators actually rule out December 25th for that very reason. But people who have actually studied the styles of shepherding in that part of the world say, actually, it's not really unheard of for shepherds to inhabit those hillsides and pasture their sheep at night in December. Because the climate there is a little like Southern California in that wintertime temperatures vary greatly. You know, it might be really cold yesterday, but kind of warm today. And it can be still warm enough in December for shepherds to work in the hill country. Even on nights where the cold reaches those low seasonal averages, shepherds could use tents to keep themselves warm, and sheep can huddle in the fold without any additional shelter. They're fine during the night, as long as it's not terribly sub-freezing. So you can't actually rule out the traditional date for Christmas based on the fact that there were shepherds in the fields. And also, you've probably been told that the Roman church chose December 25th and began to celebrate Christmas during the reign of Constantine because that date closely aligned with the pagan holiday of Saturnalia celebrates the fact that the, the solstice has just passed three days ago or whenever. And so days are now gaining more sunlight increasingly every day. And so there was a celebration, a pagan celebration for that, and they just morphed that into Christmas. But that's not the full story either. There's actually a Christian historian named Sextus Julius Africanus who wrote in the second century, was born in the second century, decades before Constantine converted to Christianity. And he, this historian, was the one who actually uh, first recorded that, that December 25th was the date they celebrated Christ's birth. And in fact, he may have been the impetus for doing that because he, he made a comprehensive chronology of the world in which he said the creation of the world occurred on March 25th in the year 00 BC. How he came up with that date, I don't know, but he did. And then he said that Jesus' conception also took place on March 25th. And therefore, if you consider a nine-month gestation period, Christ would have been born on December 25th. And so that's how he came up with the date. Now, it's not a very convincing rationale for setting the date for Christmas, but it does indicate that Constantine isn't the one who chose December 25th, or at least he didn't choose it solely because he wanted to absorb a pagan holiday. 
There is some evidence that Christians were celebrating and commemorating Jesus' birth in December as early as the second century. Now, of course, no one actually knows the date of Christ's birth. The the exact day of his birth is a matter of some dispute, but again, it is not important. If the date really mattered, Scripture would have recorded it. And so for, for those who may be inclined to despise Christmas celebrations or or scold your fellow believers for observing Christmas as a holiday, let me just refer you to Romans chapter 14, verses 5 and 6. One person judges one day above another, another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. He who regards the day regards it for the Lord. That applies to Christmas. It's why I have no scruples, no compunction about celebrating Christmas. I love it. I'm not a Scrooge. And anyway, this is what we do know. Christ was born. He was born to the Virgin Mary in Bethlehem. He was wrapped in swaddling clothes and laid in a manger. And then this happened. And this is our text, Luke 2, verses 8 through 20. In the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today, in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. And it happened that when the angels had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds began to say to one another, Let us go to Bethlehem then and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And so they went in a hurry and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in the manger. And when they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told them about this child. And all who heard it marveled at the things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary was treasuring all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds went back glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen, just as was told them. Now, I'm not going to do a deep dive into this text, but I want to point out three remarkable features of this little drama. And and by the way, although we commemorate this event throughout most of the world with what is the biggest, most important holiday every year, Don't lose sight of the fact that the birth of Christ, the actual original birth of Christ, and all the drama that surrounds it went virtually unnoticed by most of the world, by really all of the world on the night that it occurred. And and with that fact in mind, there are three remarkable features that I want you to notice when you look at this event from the shepherd's perspective. And I'll give them to you now if you want to write fast, but... We'll examine them clearly one at a time, so if you don't get them down, you will. First, we're going to observe the majesty of the scene in heaven. Then we're going to consider the plainness of the shepherds in the field. And finally, we'll ponder the lowliness of the holy family around the manger. So let's talk about each of those amazing features, each one in turn. First, observe the majesty of the scene in heaven. Despite this dim and lowly imagery of a manger in a cave and shepherds under a night sky, this whole account just blazes with the eternal glory of God. Those bleak earthly images are a backdrop that make the glory of God shine in this passage with maximum luminescence, and the glory bursts on the scene almost at the very start, and then it just keeps intensifying. Because when you look in on these shepherds at first, verse 8, it's night, it's dark. But then immediately in verse 9, the angel materializes out of nowhere. And I, I would guess, again, this is probably Gabriel. Verse 8, and the glory of the Lord shone all around them. That's all around the shepherds and the angel and everybody here. So much that these guys were scared out of their wits like you would have been. In fact, I... I had a police car light me up at night one time with that little cop light by his rearview mirror. And that was enough to put me in mortal fear, right? (laughs) 
This was the very glory of heaven. But the angel speaks to them to calm them down. He says he has good news. The Savior is born down there in that village. And they call him Christ, which again is the Greek word for Messiah. So it's clear what they are saying. In fact, in that part of the world at that time, even a lowly shepherd would understand the significance of Messiah, Christ. And the angel implies that he wants these shepherds to go and see the newborn for themselves, see the Savior with their own eyes, because he gives them a sign. And the sign is the manger, verse 12. And as soon as he says that, the whole hillside is now covered with more angels and more glory, a multitude of the heavenly host. You see these paintings where you've got these effeminate-looking angels looking down from the sky. It wasn't like that at all. It's these angels materialized into this world and brought the glory of God with them, and the whole region lit up. And a multitude of the heavenly host, that signifies a number that's too great to count. If it was, for example, 600, that would be called a cohort. A legion would be 6,000. But the word here is translated multitude is the Greek word plethos, which signifies a number that you can't easily count or put a number to. So I gather that there were thousands of angels on that hillside. And the word host there is a Greek word stratia, which is a military term that signifies a vast army. So you picture this army of angels, the heavenly host. Uh, By the way, the heavenly host itself is mentioned frequently in Scripture. And this is a massive, incalculable throng of angels that are far too numerous to assign a number to. You know, Jesus said all he had to do was mention to his father and he'd send, what did he say, like 12 legions of angels to help him. So... So the number of angels you can't assign a number to, it's actually described in Hebrews 12, 22 as innumerable angels in festal gathering. That's the ESV. The LSB says myriads of angels. And Revelation 5, verse 11 is even more specific, suggesting that these are all kinds of diverse living creatures, angelic beings, but creatures of all kinds, and the number of them, Scripture says, was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. In other words, it's more than your mind could ever fathom or your mouth could ever express. Countless angels. And in Luke 2, it's a large multitude of these creatures who appear to the shepherds, and I'm, I'm inclined to think you'd, you'd have to count them not by dozens, but by tens of thousands of these angels. And they suddenly materialize out of the heavenly realm onto that hillside, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest. Now, you know, there's also some debate about whether the angels actually sang that chorus like a song. Some of our favorite Christmas carols say that they sang, but the Bible doesn't actually say that. It says they were saying this, and in fact, I, I don't think there's any place in Scripture that pictures the angels singing musically. But truth is, when you have multitudes of the heavenly host speaking those words of praise in perfect unison, I expect there's a musical sound to it. Or maybe it was rhythmic, like hip-hop. No, probably not. But anyway, I think it's a bit pedantic to to argue about whether the angels sing or not based on this text. Maybe it's true that the text doesn't say they sang, but there is something symphonic about this, right? And the point is that the glory permeates this account. It's the glory of all heaven. And even what the angels talk about is glory. This is heaven's glory come to earth. And the greatest glory of all, the proof that the glory of heaven has come to earth is actually veiled in human flesh and wrapped in swaddling clothes, but still there's no obscuring his glory. It's glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth, and and that will be made abundantly clear as he grows and enters public ministry and lives a perfect life and dies for other sins and then rises from the dead. But what's veiled in this infant will become clear through his life and death and resurrection. And the proof of it is there 
in testimony about him given by these glorious angels, as well as the worship offered to him by the shepherds. So that's the first remarkable feature here, the majesty of the scene in heaven. Now consider the plainness of the shepherds in the field. I've already touched on this, so I won't spend a great deal of time on it. But shepherds were not men of honor and prestige. It was, it was hard to maintain an air of dignity, much less even stay clean, if you worked as a shepherd. You know, sheep are stupid and filthy animals. Shepherds are not ever socialites or luminaries. In fact, as I pointed out, too often men who worked as shepherds weren't even trustworthy. Jesus spoke of them as hirelings. That's what he was describing, and people knew well what the character of the typical hired shepherd would be. In fact, there was virtually no way to go lower in the pecking order, the social pecking order, than the plane on which shepherds existed. They tended to be loners, men of limited capabilities. Often they were even social outcasts. In fact, think about it. If you were a pariah or a marginalized person, if you'd been tagged as a miscreant and society rejected you, and if you were still, you could still earn a living as a shepherd. And if you were willing to take the night shift, you could subsist in virtual isolation from all the rest of society. This was a career befitting an antisocial loner. I would have made a good shepherd. And there was frankly no more plain or austere or workable lifestyle in that culture. Any simpler mode of existence would actually lead to your death by starvation or exposure very quickly. Because after all, think about it, even beggars depend on interaction with other people. They, they had to sit in a public high traffic places in order to beg. But shepherds, night shepherds in particular, could live solitary lives in the simplest of circumstances, and hardly anybody would notice them, much less look up to them or venerate them because of their work. These were the least admired characters in legitimate society. The only, the only people below them in the hierarchy of esteem would be criminals and tax collectors and other types of rank scalawags. And frankly, lots of shepherds had a reputation that they were scoundrels too. But here, the glory of heaven comes down in visible form to this team of night shepherds. These guys were the only ones in hundreds of years, besides Mary and Zechariah, the only ones in hundreds of years to whom angels appeared in glorious form with a prophetic announcement. You realize, I hope, that these shepherds were probably not the most pious inhabitants in the vicinity of Bethlehem on that night, you know? It wasn't like the angels went looking for the most holy group of people to announce Jesus coming to. It was almost the opposite. Now, these guys became zealous evangelists after the angels accosted them, but before this incident, they were simple career shepherds. They weren't biblical scholars. They weren't experts in messianic prophecy. They weren't religious leaders of any kind. They probably weren't poets or deep thinkers of the type we know David to be when he was shepherding. But just like the disciples Jesus would later handpick, they were working class outdoorsmen with crude lifestyles and vulgar manners. They were the plainest of men. We don't even know most of their names. And so I hope you can see the sharp contrast between the first feature of this narrative, heaven's majesty, and the second feature, the shepherd's plainness. We turn now to the third remarkable feature of this drama. Ponder the lowliness of the holy family around the manger. You know, Jesus' earthly father, Joseph, was himself a low-caste working man, a carpenter. He was poor enough that he couldn't acquire suitable arrangements for his pregnant wife to deliver a child. His life was hard. This journey to Bethlehem was a major inconvenience coming as it did on the eve of Mary's delivery. And the journey for her, whether, whether she made it on foot or in a cart or on the back of a donkey or something, the journey for Mary would have been unthinkably difficult. Almost a hundred miles and not in, not in a comfortable limousine. 
In fact, there's nothing comfortable or easy, much less luxurious about the lifestyle of Joseph and Mary ever. This little family apparently had no relatives in the vicinity of Bethlehem who could help them. But they had one thing. They were truly pious people. Mary was a faithful young woman. Luke gives us many examples of her faithfulness. Matthew 1 verse 19 tells us Joseph was a righteous man. So both Jesus and Mary had seen the angel, Mary in person, Joseph had seen him in a dream, and they knew that the promises about who Jesus was and what he would do, they knew that came from heaven, they knew it was real. Luke tells us twice in Luke 2.19 and again in verse 51 that Mary was treasuring all these things, pondering them in her heart. So she's meditating on the reality of all this. She realizes that this is God's plan, even though it's not unfolding in a way she would have liked or expected. A less faithful woman might easily have been confused by the paradox between heaven's glory and her own earthly existence, the reality of all the dirt and filth that surrounded her. After after all, the angel, remember, I read this, the angel had promised her, Luke chapter 1, verses 31 through 33, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and there will be no end of his kingdom. That's the promise. It's very regal, right? But there's nothing the least bit regal about Jesus' birth or his current circumstances. And that angel hadn't said anything about Jesus' sufferings or his self-abasement or his servanthood. Why would Mary expect his birth to be like this? And then this dirty band of shepherds shows up with their story about an angelic visitation. Mary had to know that everything they said was true because she'd heard the same basic facts, most likely from the very same angel. She had the same experience. But still, it had to be hard to process all of this and make sense of it. It's like the Old Testament prophets mentioned in 1 Peter 1.10 who made careful searches and inquiries, inquiring to know what time or what kind of time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he was predicting the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. How do you put that together, the suffering and the glory? And in short, it was hard for anyone to understand how so much suffering and inconvenience and hardship could possibly be reconciled with all the promised glory. So much glory on display. And yet, life for Joseph's little family was in no, ma- in no way made cushy or wealthy because of the glory that came down from heaven. In fact, it seemed like What happened to them was the opposite. And make no mistake, the troubles of this little family are by no means over after the baby is born. You remember that no less than Herod is going to try to find and kill Jesus. Joseph is forced to take his family and flee to Egypt. This family never did rise up out of poverty, much less attain a position of comfort or ease or earthly honor. The prosperity gospel is a lie. It didn't even happen to Jesus' family. And you know what else? This was the deliberate plan of God. When we began this morning, Mike read from 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though being rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. Joseph, you know, apparently died before Jesus went into his public ministry, because Joseph never appears in the background of the narrative after this. And when Jesus was crucified, Jesus handed Mary into the care of the Apostle John. So Joseph isn't even there anymore. He's dead. But what they did inherit and what Jesus would grow up and achieve for all those who trust in him as Lord and Savior is infinitely better than any earthly riches. All that glory is the rightful inheritance of every believer. It's it's more real, the glory, the glory of eternity, more real and more lasting than any earthly inconvenience, much less any earthly wealth. 
more valuable than all the riches of this world combined. And in Romans 8.18, Paul says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. And in 2 Corinthians 4.17, he says, Paul, who suffered so much, refers to all his lifetime of suffering as a momentary light affliction that he says is working out for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. So think about what this is saying. That glory belongs to heaven. It pertains to eternity. It is not native to this world. This world is passing away along with all the evil in it. And if you listen carefully to the message of those angels, they are telling us that the good news of great joy lies not in the fact that this world is suddenly going to be a great place for us to live, but that there has been born for us a Savior who is Christ the Lord, who gave himself for our sins so that he might rescue us from this present evil age. This present world is still evil. It still always will be. But what we're given here is a Savior who will rescue us from it. We need a Savior because we are hopelessly in bondage to sin, and we can't save ourselves. We can't atone for our own sins. We can't escape the wages of sin, which is death, on our own. But Christ, the Savior, made full atonement for our sins through the sacrifice of himself. This is what Christmas is really all about. This is the true meaning of Christmas. You hear it in the words of these angels, that God came to earth in human form for one major reason. In the words of Hebrews 9.26, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. His death paid the price of sin for everyone who will turn to him in humble faith and just acknowledge our own sinful helplessness. And here is, I believe, the very reason God chose these shepherds and chose a working man's family to be the conduit for Christ to come into this world in abject humility because unless we are likewise humble ourselves and confess our sins and admit our inability to save ourselves and turn to Christ alone as Savior, if we don't do that, there's no other way under heaven to be saved. But the good news, to quote Romans 10, 13, is that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom he is well pleased. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you sent your only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. May each person here this morning and everyone who otherwise hears this message Ponder carefully the meaning of the glory and the good news of the gospel. Draw many hearts to faith in Christ, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You have been listening to pastor and teacher Phil Johnson. For more information about the ministry of the Grace Life Pulpit, visit at www.thegracelifepulpit.com. Copyright by Phil Johnson, all rights reserved.